Good morning. It's my joy and my privilege to be able to share with you today. We're going to continue the series, When the Fight Calls, and today we're going to talk about fight for your marriage. So if you've got your Bible or Bible app, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I am not a marriage counselor. Janet and I have been married 35 years. That does not make me an expert. That just means I've had some time to learn from my mistakes. Janet and I had been married about a year, and I had to go out of town on a business trip. So she took me to the airport, and this was back in a time when the airport security was not as strict, and she could go into the terminal with me and wait at the gate until I boarded my flight. And so we were sitting there talking, and then she asked me a question. She said, do you know what today is? And I said, yes, it's Tuesday. And then we talked some more, and then she asked me a question, do you know what today is? And I said, yes, it's the day I go out of town. And then she said, is it anything else? And I thought really hard, and I said, I don't think so. And then we waited, and then it was time to board the flight, so I gave her a hug, and I got in line, and I get up to the, uh, the, border, the gate agent, and I gave them my boarding pass, and then I took two steps into the jet bridge, and then I hear behind me Janet shout, it's my birthday. There's nothing I could do. I was already committed. I could not go back. I don't have a phone. I cannot call her. All I could do was get on a plane for the next few hours and think about what I have just done. If an excellent wife is hard to find, a good husband may be even more difficult. Today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. It's not your typical text on marriage. It's actually Paul describing how we should relate to each other within the body of Christ. But I was thinking since the church is the bride of Christ and one day Jesus is coming again to take his bride home, I thought I'd use these few verses to describe not only how we relate to each other, but how we can relate in our marriage. So if you've got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. Notice it begins with therefore. So you have to go back to Ephesians chapter 3, which ends with what some will call Paul's prayer of empowerment. And you may know those last few verses where it says, Now to him who is able to do more than we can even ask or imagine, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, since we have the power of God working in us, therefore, I beg you, I plead with you, I urge you, I encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. Let's raise the standard in our relationship with each other and in our marriage because we have the power of God inside of us. Just a moment. I apologize. I'm losing my voice, so I need to drink some water. But if you go to the next two verses, those are the verses you want to memorize. You want to put those in your mind and in your heart where he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve 
the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Take those verses and put them in your mind and in your heart so we can understand how we should relate to each other in our marriage. I'll give you just a moment to memorize it. There'll be a test later. You may be familiar with some of the books that Gary Chapman has written. He's the longtime senior associate pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, and he wrote the book, The Five Love Languages. You may have read that, but he also wrote another book called Covenant Marriage. And in that book, he reminds us that a covenant relationship is not like a contract that has terms and conditions and a termination clause, that a covenant is a solemn promise commitment to each other. And the Bible is full of covenants. For example, God made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. And he made a covenant with us. If you remember that last supper, Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to understand you have a covenant relationship with God. There's also covenants between people like Ruth and Naomi or David and Jonathan, and it says their souls were knitted together. In Proverbs, it says that the wife that leads her husband has broken the covenant, not only to her husband, but also with God. In his book, he identifies five characteristics of a covenant relationship. And so I'd like for you to think about these in terms of our relationship with God, that a covenant relationship is for the benefit of the other person. Jesus stepped out of heaven into humanity, and having the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. That was for your benefit, so you could have a relationship with him. And a covenant relationship is made of unconditional promises. We have the unconditional promise of God's unchanging character. The prophet Malachi said, you are the Lord my God and you change not. In Hebrews it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's character does not change. That is why Paul could write Timothy and say, even when you are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness in your life is an unconditional promise of his character. God will be faithful. In the same way, God's love is unconditional. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. The unconditional promise of God's unchanging character. And everything in our covenant relationship is based on a steadfast love. Because God is love. Jeremiah says he has loved you with an everlasting love and he draws you to himself with loving kindness. An everlasting love has no bounds. You can't measure how high it is, how wide it is, how deep it is. It starts in the beginning of time and goes to the end of time. His everlasting love is always there. And that's why we have a relationship with permanence. That's why a covenant relationship is one that endures. That's why God said that he would never leave us or forsake us. Jesus said he, he would send us a helper who would be with us forever. There's this enduring promise in a covenant relationship. And the 
put the Holy Spirit inside of us to convict us of our unrighteousness and to guide us into truth. For God's discipline in our life is for our good. But we know that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and forgive us for all unrighteousness because a covenant relationship requires confrontation and forgiveness. And that's why the prophet Micah could say, God has taken my sins and put them in the depths of the sea. David could say, God has taken my sins and separated them as far as the east is from the west. Jeremiah could say, God took my sins and he remembers them no more. We know what a covenant relationship looks like because we have one in Jesus Christ. It has been demonstrated in our lives every day. And so if you understand what your relationship with God looks like, can we elevate that standard and bring that same relationship into our marriage and into our relationships with other people? Hold it to a higher standard. So I would like to do that by going back to Ephesians chapter 4, those two verses that you already memorized, and look at those in the context of a covenant relationship. A covenant is for the benefit of the other person. So verse 2 begins with all humility. The opposite of humility is pride. So you need to get yourself out of the way. If I'm going to do something for the benefit of the other person, then it's not about me. It's about them. And he says all. That means completely, entirely. It's not me. It's whatever I can do for Janet. Excuse me. It's going to be for her benefit. A few years ago, I went to work and I made the mistake of telling a coworker that it was Janet's birthday. And so he asked me, well, what are you going to get her? And I said, well, we really don't do birthdays because I already set a low bar for birthdays. And, but all day long, he kept asking me, telling me I have to do something. He said, well, at least you're going to give her a card. And I said, well, we don't do that either. But on the way home, I started thinking about it. And I said, maybe that's a good idea. I could get Janet a birthday card and she would really appreciate it. She would know how much she means to me. So on the way home, I stopped at a drugstore and I go in and they have this big rack. I don't buy cards, but I did that day. They had this big rack and it must have had a hundred birthday cards. Humorous ones, romantic ones, uh, all different kinds. And I think I spent 20 minutes looking at every card that they have, trying to find that perfect card. And so I finally pick one and I go out, I buy it and I get out my car and I write in it, Janet, happy birthday. I love you very much, Keith. I'm such a creative writer. So then I get home and I hand her the card and she takes it, she opens it and she reads it and she said, you didn't read this, did you? And I said, of course I read it. I read every card in the store. And she handed it back and said, read it. And it had flowers on the front. I open it up, has a poem on the inside. It says, roses are red, violets are blue, something, something. Happy birthday to that special man in my life. (laughs) 
There is a difference between humility and humiliation. I thought I was doing something for her, but God was teaching me something else. That sometimes in my mind, I was thinking of how much she was going to appreciate it to show me how much she appreciated me. And sometimes we get that backwards in our mind. That it's going to be truly for the benefit of the other person. See what Paul writes in Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It's about them and not about you. So if you don't know what that other person in that relationship needs, ask them, but then be willing to meet that need. But once you know what that need is, then make an unconditional promise to meet that need. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. If I know Janet's need is for me to listen to her, then I make an unconditional promise to her that she can interrupt me at any time, although right now wouldn't be a very good time, but she could interrupt me at any time and I'll turn off ESPN. I'll set down the remote. I'll set down my phone and I'll give her my complete attention and I'll do that with gentleness. Not reluctantly, not complaining, not grumbling, not tolerating her, but I do it because that's for her benefit. An unconditional promise to meet her need. Earlier this year, Janet and I went to visit my father. He's 91 years old. And I asked him, I said, I want to know more about your story because when I was very young, you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But I remember when I was young, I went to church and my father did not go with us. But then I also remember going and he was with us. So I said, I want to know how you went from not with us to with us. But first I want to tell you what I remember. And when I got older, I had learned that when my parents had got married, my mother was a saved Baptist. Not that that makes you saved. My father was a lost Methodist. Not that that's what makes you lost. But then when they got married, they made a commitment to each other that they would attend the Methodist church faithfully every Easter. So I grew up, we went to church once a year. I have memories when I was preschool and kindergarten where my mother would dress me in a little brown suit and a little clip-on bow tie, and we would go to the Dutch Reformed United Methodist Church. That's a lot to say. Right? But I remember we would go there, and I hated it. But when I was in the second grade, God stirred my mother's heart. And, he and she went to my father and said, he says, I'm going to go to this little Baptist church in town every week to go to Bible study and worship and I'm going to take our children with us, and I'm going to go even if you do not go. Because I made an unconditional promise to God that we would go, even if you don't. And so I remember going to church, and we would go, and my father would not be with us. But I remember in Sunday school, I memorized my first Bible verse, John 3.16. Mrs. Brady helped me learn that. 
And then I remember my father started coming with us. And I remember sitting next to him in worship. I remember seeing him baptized one night with my brother. And so I asked my father, how did you get from here to here? And he said, everything you said is true. Your mother took you to church and I did not go. It wasn't important to me, he said. He said, I would just get up on Sunday and work around the house. And he said, and that went on for a period of time until one day God called me by name. And he said, what are you doing here? You should be with your family. And my father impressed upon him so much that he quickly got dressed and he got to church just in time for worship to begin at the shock of my mother. And my father told me he doesn't remember anything about that service other than he couldn't wait for it to end so he could go talk to the pastor and ask him, what must I do to be saved? And then he was baptized that night along with my older brother. A family was changed for eternity because I had a mother who said, I'm going to follow God unconditionally, even if you don't. So the best thing you can do in your relationships is you chase after God with all your heart, even if those around you do not. And then besides that, make unconditional promises to them to meet their need. Notice what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. So he's got patient in there. Gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Because of your decisions and your actions, people can be brought to God as you seek after God. Peter writes that the unbelieving husband may be one. That's W-O-N, may be one because of the behavior of his wife. It's important for us to seek after God if we really want to build our relationship, even if those around us will not. The third part of a covenant relationship is a steadfast love. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. It says, showing tolerance for one another in love. Notice it begins with showing. That's a verb. It's an action. Love is an action. It's not something you say. It's something you do. And it says showing tolerance. That doesn't mean I tolerate you. I put up with you. Some translations use the word forbearance. It's better thought about as I'm going to carry your burden. Because I love you so much, that steadfast love, I'm going to come along beside you and carry that burden for you. At the age of 63, my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And for the next 10 years of her life, I watched that disease take more and more and more of who she was. And my father was able to take care of her at home that entire time. But most of that time, not only didn't she recognize who we were, but she couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. She couldn't take care of herself. And I watched my father every day with a steadfast love, with a brush of her hair, with a kiss on the forehead, with a spoonful of food. Every time he had to pick her up and carry her, every day after day, year after year, never complaining or grumbling, but with a steadfast love for her, he said, I'm going to carry your burden. 
that even in the darkest circumstances we can imagine, God can demonstrate his great love. That's a covenant relationship. That is a steadfast love. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's not new that we're supposed to love other people. The second and greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm elevating the standard. I don't want you just to love people the way you love yourself. I want you to love people the way I love them. So that means I'm going to love them unconditionally, sacrificially, with everything I have because it's about them. That is what it means to have a steadfast love. And the fourth thing is that a covenant relationship is intended to be permanent. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Being diligent. That means it takes effort. You have to work at it. You have to put energy into it. And what are you trying to do? Preserve, extend, endure the relationship. But that comes through unity in the Spirit. And notice the translator put capital S. That's the Spirit of God that you've got a better chance of having an enduring marriage, an enduring relationship when you're both chasing after God. Each person seeking God and seeking God together. And that's why it says a cord with three strands is not easily torn apart. Each person seeking God and God together. Herbert and Zelmira Fisher from James City, North Carolina, were, was married in 1924. And they stayed married up until Herbert's death in 2011. And if you're doing that math in your head, that's 86 years. That's a long time to be married. And upon Herbert's death, people asked Elmira, what's the secret to a long-lasting marriage? And she said, there is no secret, but it is God who holds you together. What she's saying is it's God who allows that relationship to be permanent. Notice what it says in Isaiah. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I wanted to show you this verse because I want you to understand God's intent is for our relationships, our marriage to be permanent. That is God's intention an everlasting covenant. But with that said, I know we do not live in a perfect world. And I do not want to encourage people to remain in abusive or harmful relationships. But God's intent is for us to have something better, to have a much higher standard in how we relate to each other. And the last one is a covenant relationship requires confrontation and forgiveness. Ephesians 2 Chapter, verse 3, it ends with the bond of peace. That word there for bond is like ligaments in a joint. It's what holds everything tightly together. The bond of peace. Without forgiveness, there will not be peace. There will be bitterness and regret and remorse. 
And what happens when that exists, that bond is no longer held tightly together. It starts to separate. And that's why it says people just drift apart because there's bitterness in their relationship. If you want to live in a covenant relationship, you have to be willing to ask for forgiveness and be willing to give forgiveness. You need to hold each other accountable to the promises you make. And then you will, and then you will start to have the relationship that God intended you to have. After Janet and I were married, we went to visit my aunt in San Antonio, and she took me aside, and she said, Keith, do you know the difference between in-laws and outlaws? She said, outlaws are wanted. But my, yeah, you're going to catch that. My in-laws, they were great, but their marriage wasn't always great. They had a period of time where they had broken promises, they had trust issues, but they stayed together and they had a heart of forgiveness and they were willing to come back to God and get God's forgiveness. And they both sought after God and they sought after God together. And I watched them both grow in their relationship with God and in their marriage. And in 2004, Janet and I were able to go back to the mountains of North Carolina where they had this big celebration of their 50th wedding anniversary. And they held a small ceremony where they recommitted their covenant relationship to each other because they understood that it is God that holds you together, but it requires forgiveness. And Colossians would be the companion verse to Ephesians. And I like what Paul writes he says, so as to those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Very similar to what we read in Ephesians, but in here, Paul puts on the end and forgiving each other. We need to have a heart of forgiveness and not regret, not bitterness. We know what a covenant relationship looks like. Because we have that with Jesus Christ. Can we take that same idea and apply it to our relationship with each other and in our marriage? Can you imagine what it would be like if your relationship with your friends, everyone cared more about the other person's needs than their own? Can you imagine what it would be like in your relationship and your family if everyone gave them the unconditional promise that I'm going to love and take care of you even when you act unlovable. Can you imagine what it would be like in our church if we said, I'm going to come along beside you and carry your burden even in the darkest of days because of my steadfast love for you. Can you imagine what it would be like in our marriage where we could rest securely knowing that that other person would always be by our side. Can you imagine what it would be like in our relationship with God when we finally realize that we are forgiven so we can forgive ourselves? God has something much better for us in our relationships with each other and in our marriage. But we know that this battle is not of flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, it's against powers, it's against worldly forces in this darkness. 
It's against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But we also know that greater is the one that's in us than the one that is in this world. That we can have a high standard in our marriage. We could have the life that God wants us to have. Can we fight the good fight? Can we fight for our marriage? Can we fight for our relationships with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Can we do that in such a way that when people see your marriage or they see your relationships, that they start to see the character of God that which is love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. May, God, may the people around us see the glory and goodness of God in our lives and in our marriage. Can you imagine that? Pray with me. Dear God, I thank you for this day. Father, how much you love us, how much you poured yourself out to us in a covenant relationship. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today and they're uncertain or unsure about that relationship, Father, stir their heart. Father, may this be the day that they say yes to Jesus. May you change and transform broken hearts. May you heal broken marriages. May you take us closer to you than we've ever been before. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.